So, good morning. I'm in uh, Portland, Oregon, which is the left coast of the U.S., and I hope you get some value from this uh, workshop. So, basically, I'm going to be talking about disruption. Disruption in general, disruption of verticals, disruption in organizations, and personal disruption. And part of that is I'm hopefully going to offer some tips, tools, and solutions. So let's get into it. But before I jump into it, I want to do a quick story. At first, I thought this was humorous, but I <laughs> became a little bit more serious when I filled up my gas tank. Fred asked me about a, two months ago to give a talk. So I said, sure, why not? It'll be fun. And <laughs> one of the things I put in the description was $10 gallon of gas. Uh, and I thought, you know, at that time, gas was running around $394 in the Northwest. And I thought, you know, what are the chances of uh, gas becoming $10 a gallon within two months? Well, Northern California, Mendocino County, uh, there is a town where the average cost of a gallon of gas is, guess what, $9.50. So I thought worst case scenario might be at the end of the year where we'd see that, but things are accelerating very, very quickly. So let's see. Uh, who am I? Here's a sort of a brief bio. So a little bit of introduction. I've been in this business a long time. Uh, we've been basically promoting, advocating, evangelizing that the future of quality probably any profession is risk. Uh, we've done a lot of stuff in terms of uh, Homeland Security, auditing, assurance. Uh, spent the last 20 years actually doing Homeland Security, forensics, assurance, and analytics. So I've been in this business a long time. Now, I guess that's the point of this slide. So just in case, if I'm boring you to death, here are the five takeaways for the entire talk today. We're living in a VUCA world, and VUCA is an acronym for volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Uh, all life and work is being disrupted. Risk is a new lens for working and living, not only at work, not only for our professions or jobs, but really for everything. And then finally, the two big takeaways, all management is now risk management and the future quality and reliability is risk. And on the right, you can see a couple pictures. Unfortunately, we have the Ukraine war. We have the COVID virus. We have an evergreen ship basically blocking the Suez Canal. And especially in the Northwest, we have fires. And of course, fires up in the Northwest we've always had, but for some reason, the last five, 10 years, they've accelerated. So if there's anything uh, that we can leave, these are the five points we want to talk about, and we'll be talking about them for the next 30, 35 minutes. So here's our presentation outline. We're going to cover three big topics, context, challenge and response. I'm going to talk about, first of all, context. I had a boss a lot of years ago who said context 
for any problem is worth 20 IQ points. And since he was my boss, I think I got it. And the context of this, of this talk is disruption, and frankly, of everything is a new normal. Um, one of the things that you may want to do is just take a look almost at anything, your work, your job, even going to the store and look at things from a disruptive lens, a risk lens, from what happened pre-COVID to where we are now. Look at the Delta. And the Delta basically is the disruption from now to what we had before pre-COVID. The second piece of this presentation, I'm going to talk about the challenges. Risk is the lens for looking at life and work. And then the response will be the solutions that we'll be talking about in this talk, specifically risk-based problem solving and risk-based decision-making. So let's dive into it. First of all, what's disruption? Uh, disruption has a lot of definitions. It basically means different things to different people. But for our, for our more technical um, conversation today, and I like to make it a conversation. So if you have questions, please put it in the chat or bring it up with me or bring it up with uh, uh, Fred, because you know we really like this, like your comments. So from a technical point of view, we look at disruption in terms of four criteria, four factors, boundary conditions, rules, expectations, and tools and technology. So just in terms of <laughs> this example, and I'm using this example because I've got a 22-year-old going to college right now and graduating. And a lot of these points, I think, are really relevant to me right now. So I'm going to talk about and basically offer an example in terms of boundary conditions. Pre-COVID, most college education was on campus now. Most of it, or a lot of it, is moving online. The rules, most colleges required vaccinations before students can take campus classes. Expectations, I think now, especially with high student loans, parents expect value. We expect, I expect value from my daughter's education. So there's a lot more what I would call emphasis on return on investment. And the fourth factor we look at in terms of disruption is that most learning tools five years ago were basically um, uh, school-based or on-site-based. Now, almost all of them are online tools and technologies. So the bottom line is disrupting. disruption is impacting higher education, it's impacting teaching, and as we'll talk about in this talk, Disruption is occurring all over the place, especially in our profession. So here's an example, and I'm going to talk about this example. Um, last September, we started a project with Oregon State University. Now, on the bottom of the slide, and I'm not going to read it, you can read it, there's some future of work statistics. Again, disruption. But a little background on this project. Oregon State has the biggest program in the world for computer science. Uh, they're probably ranked in the top 15% worldwide. And we had a project with them basically to develop a future of work app. And we started the app. And that's one reason why a lot of examples in this talk address education. If you're interested in the full description, 
uh, visit that URL on the bottom. But the bottom line is most higher education institutions are rebranding and, re and focusing on the future of work and especially making their graduates more employable. So another disruption I'd like to talk about is work. You can take a look at the statistics here. I'm not gonna read them, but it'll give you an impression. I'm, again, I'm not gonna read any of the slides. Uh, if you're interested in the slide deck, please reach out to Fred and he'll send you the slide deck. Uh, also a plug for Fred's uh, send of reliability. If you're not a member, if you're not an affiliate, if you're not working with Fred, please do it. He's got the best site, bar none, on reliability and probably quality in the world right now. So you can see basically what's happening. And by the way, the source of this is McKinsey a couple months ago. Again, more disruption and more what I would call personal disruption. Now I'm gonna talk about organizational disruption. And there's a lot I can talk about in this uh, slide, but the horizontal axis is time. The vertical axis is VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. And we have two graphs or two lines. The horizontal line, which is dotted, shows internal processes, which are Six Sigma based. Uh, many organizations, especially S in quality and reliability, have focused on consistency, consistency of product quality, consistency in processes, consistency in uh, suppliers, consistency in the delivery of product just in time. That's the essence of lean. That's the essence of Six Sigma, is you define a target and you minimize variation around that target so that the process becomes stable, statistically stable, capable of meeting requirements, and improving, meaning minimizing variation. And that's basically our operating model and reliability and quality. But here's the disruption. The external factors hitting an organization, meaning outside in, are causing disruption. And you can see that in the delta, in the gap between the solid line and the dotted line. That gap, you can think of variation, a delta, or a risk. And those risks you can see on the right-hand side of the graph are gaps. The greater the gaps, the more variation, the more disruption. Quite often it's outside in. And you can see that variation will be in work, cost, schedule, scope, technology, and quality. And again, a lot of the things that we learn in lean, reliability, quality, focus on consistency, internal consistency. But again, what do we do when we have that outside-in disruption? And that's happening in all organizations. So let's look at what's happening in the quality reliability professions. So quick story. A few years ago, I was working on an AI project. It was a national AI project that probably would impact 100,000 people in a vertical. And I was the lead PI, the risk PI, principal investigator. And basically what we wanted to do was come up with a tool, a machine that would help in the decision-making of people in this job. 
So basically what we have, what you have in your pocket right now with your smartphone is you have all the information in the world basically available at your fingertips through your smartphone. But here's the key disruptor. What do you do when all the information of your work career job is available on your work job career smartphone? For lack of anything better, let's call it your work career job Siri or Alexa. And what do you do when that smartphone starts making decisions? So what's going to be your personal differentiator in life and your job and your career? And what we're positing, what we're presenting, and what we're offering you in this workshop is a solution that we're going to talk about. And I think the differentiator, at least for the next 10 years, will be your ability as a human to do risk-based problem solving and risk-based decision-making. That will be the differentiator until these machines become smart and independent and can make decisions on their own. We're not there yet, but I think we might be coming. So a quick story. Uh, this just happened two days ago. An engineer at Google basically said publicly that their AI system, artificial intelligence system, is sentient. Basically, it can think on its own, and it has a soul of its own, and it has a body, you know, a spiritual body of its own. Well, of course, Google didn't like that. What did they do? Basically fired the guy. Um, we're reaching a point where the machines are becoming very, very smart. And what are we going to do with them? What are the rules of interaction? What are the rules of engagement with the machines? Anyway, something to think about. But more importantly, the question that I would pose to you right now is, what is your personal differentiator from the smart machine? over the next five to 10 years. And I hopefully will offer some solutions to that. <laughs> so let's look at some of the disruptions uh, facing quality, ISO, and reliability. And of course, since most of my professional background is at least in the last couple, first 10 years of my life was in quality, I'll be talking about that. Uh, I'm gonna talk about really three disruptions facing the quality profession. One is what's the risk definition? What's the definition of risk? What's risk-based thinking? And why is the entire ISO structure really crumbling right now? Meaning why are certification bodies, CBs, issuing conformance certificates when they shouldn't? So let's dive into this. This is interesting. ISO 31000 is the international risk standard. And it defines risk as the effect of uncertainty on objectives. Simple definition, effect of uncertainty. But there's only one problem. Uh, an objective is immutable. It does not change. How can uncertainty affect a document or immutable standard? It can't. So here's the disruption. How do you can't, how have companies over maybe say 2 million operationalized this definition over the last seven years. They've had a very hard time. And part of it, I think, is when ISO and quality and reliability defined risk, they defined it improperly. And what 
we've been doing, at least our company, is we're defining risk as the effect of uncertainty on the achievement of objectives. Now, why is that? Why do we add those two words and it makes things different? Well, first of all, the achievement of, of an objective makes sense. An objective is immutable, doesn't change. But the achievement of the objective is variable and it can change. So obviously adding those two words implies that risk now is measurable and audible against business and quality objectives. So just to give you an example, um, ISO 31000 was written in 2018, four years ago. Just last month, the US TAG Technical Advisory Group to ISO basically said, oops, we made, a, <laughs> we made an error. Uh, that error we made is we defined risk in the standard improperly. And this is a big deal because it impacts over 2 million companies. We defined risk improperly. I think we should add those two words, achievement of. Now, all of a sudden, they're updating all the standards. So that's one change in the quality profession that I don't think too many people anticipated four years ago. Now, seven years ago in 20, uh, 2015, ISO 9001 came out. And incorporated in that standard was this concept called risk-based thinking. Again, another problem. You can't audit somebody's thinking unless you pass mind reading 101. You can't develop audit evidence. There's no mental audit trail. There's no artifacts. In other words, ISA never defined risk-based thinking, but incorporated it into the world's biggest used standard, ISO 9001, 2015. Let me say that again. They incorporated a concept, three words, risk-based thinking, into the world's biggest standard and never defined it. So what happens is everybody interpreted it differently, applied it diff differently, and operationalized it differently. But big problem, you can't audit somebody's thinking. Second problem is it goes against the fundamentals of quality and reliability, one of which is consistency. Another way to think about quality is consistency, the application of consistency in your product, your process, your organization. But if everybody's doing something different, you have inconsistency and which implies poor quality, maybe even poor reliability. So you have to basically 2 million companies now have to reframe and redefine risk and risk-based thinking. So the solution, which we'll be discussing a lot in this talk is we define risk-based thinking in terms of two things, risk-based problem solving, risk-based decision-making, why? Well, RBPS, risk-based problem solving and risk-based decision-making offer artifacts, you have an audit trail, you have inputs and assumptions that are written, and more importantly, you can audit against that. The third thing that I'm gonna talk about in terms of quality being disrupted is that ISO 31000, the International Risk Management Standard, or I should say a guideline, 
specifically says it's not, not to be used for certification. But guess what? Risk is being such a critical issue for companies that somebody's going to take advantage of it. As that old maxim says, the marketplace hates a uh, <laughs> unmet need. Somebody's going to fill that need. And what we have are large global uh, mega companies like BSI, ANOR, and TUV in Germany, basically offering certificates. Now, again, the guideline is not for certification. But again, there's a market need and companies are meeting, that mark, are meeting that market need. And this is causing a lot of disruption quality and in reliability standards. So the first part of our discussion was context. In this part, we're gonna come up with uh, <laughs> a response. So we talked about the context, we talked about the challenges, and now we're gonna talk about some solutions. And here's a great quote from Ram Sharan. And the quote basically says, taking control of uncertainty or VUCA is a fundamental leadership challenge for our time. And I would basically say that taking control of uncertainty to best of our ability is our personal challenge of our time. Uh, obviously from an organizational point of view, Threats and opportunities are much bigger because of coronavirus, fires right now, inflation, stagflation, unfortunately. And I think what we have to do now is reevaluate our role in the whole, pro whole uh, challenge. Right now, companies are reevaluating the future of work, their business models, hybrid work, make or buy decisions, reshoring ISO systems. I think you as quality and reliability professionals need to reevaluate your future and make decisions through the risk lens. So I'm going to now start talking about risk-based problem solving and risk-based decision making. In this graph, you can see points of similarity and points of differences. And again, I'm not going to read these. You can read these on your own, or please reach out to Fred and he'll send you the deck. Again, one more plug for Fred. Get engaged with Ascendo. Great platform, free information, and uh, you'll learn a lot. So anyway, um, basically in this graph, you can see points of similarity, points of difference. I'm gonna go through these slides sometimes in detail, but I'm not gonna read them off. Um, one of the things that we're seeing right now, and we're going to talk about this in the next five slides, is VUCA. Again, we talked about what VUCA is, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. Uh, volatility essentially is, well, just what volatility means. Lots of variation, uh, lots of dynamic change. Uncertainty is lack of predictability. Uh, one way to think of uncertainty is <laughs> somebody on LinkedIn yesterday said I was an idiot. That's fine. Because uh, I define uncertainty differently than what he thought, and he had a PhD. But essentially, uncertainty is a lack of predictability. Another way to think about that is cause and effect is really uh, doesn't even exist because there's too many factors, too many unknowns. 
And really, you're going to be doing correlation analysis as opposed to causal analysis. Uh, complexity basically means that things that were easy to understand, maybe even three, five years ago, are much more complex. A lot of issues, social, people, political, identity, uh, technical, and ambiguity. Uh, ambiguity essentially is the fog of reality, the fog of business, the fog of competition. Um, anyway, we'll discuss those over the next couple of slides. And what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the presentation is decision making. Because if you remember a previous slide, I think our ability as professionals, quality professionals, reliability professionals, our ability to make smart, reliable, consistent decisions right now will offer more value than a machine. And again, that may change in five years, max maybe 10 years. What surprises me, and I've been playing with one of the major <laughs> AI packages for oh, a number of years, is how smart it's getting, not monthly, but daily. But anyway, over the next four slides, we're going to be talking about decision-making under volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. And I'm going to offer two types of <laughs> uh, options. Old school, which is the way we made decisions maybe even pre-COVID, and then new school, what I think the future of decision-making is going to be. Or another way to think about it, new school is risk-based decision-making. Um, Anyway, I'm not going to read these slides. Um, if you've got questions, please ask them in your chat or ask them <laughs> or email Fred, email me. Uh, but if you've got questions, please reach out. In this slide, we're talking about uncertainty. And again, uncertainty is the hey, second. Greg? Yes, sir. I, I think before you dive into the details of this one, is take a look at the chat window. Uh, Carl's brought up a, a question and a, a comment that you might find interesting. Yes, thank you. I haven't read that. And by the way, thank you for reaching out. Yes. I think Carl Dupont is right on the money. Is this part of the great reset that's happening now? The only constant is change. Agreed? Yes, I agree. The piece that I would add to that is <laughs> the velocity and even the acceleration, the second derivative of change is increasing. And I think a lot of us as professionals, and I'll just talk about myself, are still locked into old models of thinking, old models of doing. Why? Because they worked. <laughs> and now I have to sort of reevaluate stuff. Another quick story. Somebody, Fortune 500 company, probably globally, sent me a, a specification the other day and wanted me to review their system, quality system. <laughs> and I thought, huh, this is really interesting. It works under old management methods, but I wouldn't suggest that it would work right now. And I had to tell the client in a sort of a soft way that, oh, the system that you have right now works, but have you thought of this, this, and this, and this? And in the memo, which was a very quick memo, was six pages, single-spaced. 
<laughs> and I agree with Carl again, living like a tree in the woods, we are either living and growing or we are dying. Uh, as humans, human behavior sometimes is very difficult to change. I think in my case, it's very difficult to change in some cases. Uh, and that's going to be a big, big challenge for organizations, governments. Unfortunately, the biggest challenge will be governments. How are they going to adapt? But yes, good point, Carl. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, anyway, here's the uncertainty slide. The next one will be complexity. And the one after that will be ambiguity. Again, old school is old school management and decision making. New school is uh, new <laughs> risk-based problem solving and risk-based decision making. And essentially, that's the essence. That should be, these should be the new school should be our differentiators from for adding value, personal value, organizational value. And please, uh, if you got questions or comments, please add them to the chat. Because I learn just as well and probably uh, as, <laughs> yeah, I learn as much as you do probably. Um, anyway, here's ambiguity. Old school decision-making, new school decision-making. And even though I try to practice new school, the reality is I fall back to what I feel comfortable, which is often old school decision-making and problem solving. So now I'm going to get into the how-to, what is, the what is and how-to phase. So let's, in terms of risk-based decision-making. So first of all, let's define risk. We'll go from risk and we'll go into more, well, much more complex uh, functions of decision-making in a couple minutes. So essentially, risk is defined by ISO 31000 as the effect of uncertainty on objectives. Uh, big problem. And they finally admitted it last month unfortunately four years too late, that you can't audit to that, you can't operationalize that, you can't do anything with that. Uh, and unfortunately, millions of companies have attempted it in the meantime. Uh, what we advocate and what the US TAG and Global TAG recommends is you add two words, the achievement of objectives. Again, this is not in the standard. I think in the update, it certainly will be. Uh, another definition, of risk is the possibility that an event will occur that adversely affects the achievement of objectives. This is really the financial definition of risk. Um, essentially, 99% of global companies have adopted this last definition called the COSO definition. The problem with this definition is when you're basically doing a risk model or developing a risk register, you're gonna be looking at every event, real, imagined, possible, and you're gonna have a risk register of 10, 20,000 events. And you basically can manage that type of system. So the problem with this definition is that this definition tries to boil the ocean and the ocean in this case are all possible risks. And the solution in this case is 
focus on the critical few risks, not the insignificant many. So second thing I wanna introduce is what's a framework. And it's really called an RMF, risk management framework. Um, a framework basically is a structure or a hierarchy to build strategy, reach objectives and monitor performance. This is the essence of risk management. Those three issues have a strategy, reach objectives and monitor performance. They can be organizational, enterprise level. They can be programmatic project process or even product reliability objectives. So basically a framework is a set of controls. So at this point, I wanna bring up an important point. And this is really the essence of the rest of our talk. When you think of risk, you automatically should think of a control. Just like you can't define good without bad, you can't define zero without one, you cannot define uh, <laughs> risk without a control. Now, the way to think about it is, if you have a risk, you're gonna have a control. If you have a control for anything, the control basically is trying to mitigate that risk. The other really important comment on frameworks is a framework is really a set of controls. So let's look at this from a company's perspective. It's 22, 2022. The month is June. The stock market, NASDAQ, or almost all of them have hit bear territory in the last two days. Their stock price is tanked. Uh, Amazon, any, almost every stock has gone down at least 20 points. The stock market has gone down 20% from its high. You're an executive in a large firm. Doesn't matter. I mean, I looked at the stock price of, of uh, Disney. 50% down. Almost every tech stock down 20, 30, 50%. Uh, the stock prices, anyway, you're an executive and you're saying, gee, uncertainty, risk, more VUCA. What am I going to do? We can basically do what we've been doing, or we can uh, figure out where, you know, where do we want to go? Meaning what's our business model? How do we want to get there? And what type of controls are we going to have to ensure that we can meet our strategic objectives? Again, risk and controls go together. And more executives and more companies are going to be thinking in terms of developing their own risk management frameworks. Let me say that again. We're reaching a point in our economy of stagflation. I went through the 70s. I remember 17% stagflation. The economy would grow 2%, inflation would grow 17, 19%, and the delta would be 17% negative. And that went on for years. I pray, I really hope we don't go there, but the reality is the economy is slipping. And again, the executives see risks, risk, and they're gonna be looking at risk management frameworks. And we're gonna be talking about that for about five minutes. So please bear with me. So I'm gonna look at three types of risk management frameworks so I can at least introduce them to you. This is a really key idea that every company is looking at. 
if you're going to go into consulting right now, this is the area that I would recommend. Every ISO standard has risk. Every financial standard has risk. In the US right now, most legislation coming out of Washington has a risk requirement in it. Could be an ERM, enterprise risk management requirement. It could be a risk assessment. Uh, for example, I'll just bring in four areas. ESG, environmental sustainability, is a risk requirement. Uh, there's a $1.3 trillion domestic infrastructure build out. It has risk. The AI standards coming out of NIST, all risk-based. All the standards coming out of IEEE, not all, but I'll put it this way. All the standards coming out of ISO have a risk component to it. So I'm gonna introduce you to the three major RMFs, risk management frameworks. Remember that acronym, because normally people don't spell out uh, RMF. So RMF is risk management framework. So here are three guidelines I'm gonna introduce you to. First is NIST. This is the cybersecurity risk framework. Uh, latest just came out on, uh, from Department of Defense three days ago. They want this whole standard updated. Why? It's very difficult to operationalize. The second type of framework that I'm gonna introduce you to is the ISO framework. It's called ISO 31000. It's an ERM framework, enterprise risk management. I call it light. It's a global document. This is the framework, by the way, where they defined risk improperly. You can see the framework on the right. It's got uh, uh, eight components to it. It follows a cycle. It's very circular. Uh, that on the right is called its architecture. And you can see the architecture um, has to be tailored to the organization. And we're gonna talk about the tailoring in, in a minute. But that framework is the one that we use in reliability and quality almost 100% of the time. The next framework that I'm gonna introduce, the COSA framework, is used by 100% of the companies that are on the NASDAQ. This is the risk management framework that has the enterprise focus to it. Uh, it has really three, it's a box, it's a cube. On the front part of the cube, it's got the, the, the steps to it. On the upper part, it's got basically the organizational uh, areas, strategic operations. And on the right-hand side, basically, it's got the different levels, entity, business unit, division, business, and subsidiary. Uh, anyway, these are. this is called the COSO framework. And the COSO stands for the uh, <laughs> Committee of Sponsoring Organizations. Committee of Sponsoring Organizations. It includes the uh, cert, uh, management accountants, certified uh, public auditors, uh, you know, uh, financial executives. Anyway, every, fin every large company in the world that's publicly traded has to have an ERM program. It's called a listing requirement. And this is the RMF that they use from the enterprise level. So how do these things work? Normally, 
a company will have an ERM, Enterprise Risk Management Framework, which is called the COSO Cube. And then basically they take the ERM framework, the one you see on top, and they deploy it through the organization. ISO 31000 normally is not deployed at the enterprise level, is deployed at the project or process level through the organization. I hope that makes sense. So here's another option. And whether you're dealing with COSO or whether you're dealing with the cybersecurity NIST framework, or if you're dealing with ISO, every one of these frameworks has to be tailored to the culture of the organization, its risk appetite, or its context. So let me sort of talk about that for a second. If you're a pharmaceutical company, you have FDA requirements that you need to address. By the way, FDA, Food Drug Administration, all risk-based. You basically design and architect your framework, your risk management framework to the context of the organization. So the RMF of a pharmaceutical shop is gonna be different than a small manufacturing shop that would probably use ISO 31000 and it would be basically tailored to operations. If you're using a RMF for reliability, you'd focus at the process level and probably integrate your RMF with a FEMA, failure mode effects analysis. So anyway, we'll talk about that. In our case, we're a company, a small company. And what we do is take an RMF and do four things. And this is our approach. Uh, you can think of us as architect, design, deploy, and assure ADA. We've got a trademark on it. And what we essentially do is we take a risk management framework and first architect it to the organization so it can meet its strategic objectives. So we take a bunch of frameworks and we say, okay, based on their context, based upon their needs, their business model, their operating model, we basically structure the framework to fit the organization. And again, we may design a framework, RMF, for the enterprise and a different framework for a business unit and even a different framework for a PMO, program management office. Second thing we do is we tailor the framework to the organization. So as you notice, a framework, in this case here, internal environment, objective setting, event identification, we'll take each one of those and tailor it, tailor that and the controls to the organization. Meaning we'll set up a control, risk control structure for the organization and tailor it to the specific process specific objectives at the programmatic project and process level. Next thing we do in our work is we deploy the framework to the organization or even into the supply chain. And then finally, we close out the framework by developing assurance mechanisms so that the framework, and you can think of a framework as a system of risk controls throughout the organization so that the company, the organization, the enterprise, the process project can meet its objectives efficiently, effectively, and economically. 
And we basically do that for by mitigating risk based upon the organizational appetite. Now, interestingly, the organizational appetite has to be deployed throughout the organization and can be different for different parts of the organization. For example, if you have a construction project, uh, they may say, okay, we don't wanna have anything more than 5% change orders. That 5% is their, is their risk appetite for uh, cost overruns. They could have a different risk appetite for their schedule or for their scope or even for quality. But anyway, you can get the idea. In our case, what we do is we look at architect, design, deploy, and assure, and we use that as our risk PDCA. Now in quality, reliability, PDCA stands for plan, do, check, act. It's a Deming concept. Well, in risk, there is a new vocabulary, a new system, a new process. Our process really is using the RMF, risk management framework, but we have to close that out. And we close that out by assuring that the risk controls are working effectively econ economically. So I'll talk about each one of these pieces. Uh, architect and the RM framework, here's a bunch of things we do. And I'm not gonna read these, but you get an idea of what we do. And again, this is our equivalent in risk management, enterprise risk management for designing a set of controls, a, a system of controls that meet objectives within the risk appetite of the organization. Our next thing is designing. We actually will take each element of the framework that we have architected and design it in terms of each one of these elements. Actually, there's probably 30 elements of this, but you can get an idea or a flavor for what we do. Again, this is a brand new area for reliability. This is a brand new area for quality. And we think really this is the future of consulting. The deployment is what we do here. And again, deploying the RM framework, risk management framework. Now, normally the first two pieces, the architecting and designing are very technical. The deploying is really an HR function. It's a human, it's an organizational development function. First two are fairly straightforward. This takes 80 to 90% of the time <laughs> because we're dealing with behaviors. We're dealing with culture. We're dealing with people. People don't wanna change, they're risk averse. In the meantime, the organization wants to change very quickly. And we have that sort of that pull push dynamic going on. Then finally, assuring the framework, we're closing it out. We have to make sure that the objectives can be met and achieved. And then very often, we have to set up a board reporting structure. Every publicly held company, let me say this again, every publicly held company throughout the world has a risk committee at the board. And they wanna know that the controls are in place, objectives are being met, and the objectives are being met based on the risk appetite of the organization. And part of this is closing out the loop, the PDCA loop and risk is assuring that risk controls are effective, efficient, and economic.
So one of the questions we ask is, gee, can't we do this with a risk assessment? So this is an important concept that I wanna talk about. And again, this chart here is the chart for ISO 31000. If you're a purist, according to ISO, you're only gonna be doing a risk assessment of three things. You're gonna identify the risks, analyze the risks and evaluate the risks. That's it, no more. What happens is a lot of people now throughout the world are conflating, confusing or integrating the concept of risk assessment and risk management. Risk management is really the bottom part, treating the risk, mitigating the risk, managing the risk. A risk assessment simply looks at the to be at, looks at the as is state. Risk management looks at the delta between the as is state and the to be state. If the delta between the to be and the as is is too big, you're going to have more controls. If the delta between the to be and the as is is very little, then basically you may not have to add any more controls. Why? Because that's within your risk appetite. But here we get almost a lot of confusion between a lot of professionals about what the true dif difference is. Because professionals, even who have been in this 20 years, tend to conflate or confuse or integrate risk management with risk assessment. So Fred wanted me to talk about risk assessment tools. ISO 31000 lists all of these as tools <laughs> to conduct a risk assessment. Everything from a Bayesian analysis, which is a statistical uh, decision a type of analysis, Markov chains, to even a checklist. Yes, even a checklist is a risk assessment tool. Um, I can talk about any one of these. The important takeaway from all these tools is that <laughs> use the right tool in the right application and tailor it. Because a lot of folks that we see, especially right now because risk management and RMFs become hugely popular in almost every discipline, uh, people are confusing, conflating, and <laughs> uh, using the wrong tool with the wrong assumptions in the wrong application. Uh, we do a lot of that type of analysis quite often uh, when uh, an assessment has failed, we're brought in to clean things up. So you have essentially probably 33, 32 different risk assessment tools. Use the right tool in the right application with the right assumptions and with the right data. That's our takeaway. So here's a final thought on how to prosper in these disruptive times. And this basically is a quote from our favorite Charles Darwin. It's not the strongest, it's not the most intelligent, it's really the most adaptable that will survive and prosper. So with that said, I wanna say thank you to Fred, uh, thank you to Ascendo, and um, uh, hopefully can answer some of your questions. By the way, the uh, the screen early on, but I showed you a project that we're doing with Oregon State University. Uh, 
Uh, we're building an app on the future work. Well, the opening splash screen of our app, you can see on the right. Anyway, I'm here to answer some questions or try to answer some questions. Uh, anything you want me to cover, Fred? Hello? Yeah, yeah no, I've got to find the, the, <laughs> the mic button. Um, both the chat and the Q&A tabs, we're taking a look at those. If you got any questions, Jeremiah uh, okay. gave us a, a nice, I think, hopefully not as an abrupt an analogy uh, or history lesson. Isn't there something about history repeats, doesn't repeat itself exactly, but it follows the, repeats the themes or something like that? Yeah, there was a Spanish philosopher that basically said that history tends to repeat itself. Interestingly, oh, who's that? There's a billionaire who wrote a book on... Well, that doesn't narrow it down. Yeah, yeah, on history repeating itself in terms of economic cycles. But Jeremiah, uh, Mr. Todd, that's I think is pretty much right on the money. Um, any questions or comments beyond that? Please write in your chat and I'll try to address these. Well, as you remember, Greg, I, um, well, thanks for the, the shout outs for Ascendo. That wasn't necessary, but because the, these people already know about Ascendo. So we're, we're in good shape there. And a lot of familiar faces there too. <laughs> but the, um, a couple months ago, somebody asked a question um, basically about that assessment and what's a framework and those kinds of things. So I think you covered those. And that was somebody sending over a question for a topic for a future webinar. So we always appreciate it when we get that. So naturally thought of you, Greg, to, to take this on. <laughs> okay. Oh, Warren Buffett did the quote you were looking for there, that book. He's a billionaire that qualifies as somebody that wrote a book. Yeah, yeah. Um... In our case right now, and I really hope we don't have stagflation. I remember it in the late 70s. It was awful. It was brutal. Um, um, but what we're going to see are more companies, unfortunately, using risk management to ensure their survivability. And I you think already, this- Well, you're already seeing it, Greg. There's like Tesla announced last week, they're laying off, I don't know, 10% or a whole pile of people. Um, you know, companies are pulling back from investments and capital improvements, um, kind of as a hedge. Yep. And I imagine that's, uh, you know, a variation of risk-based decision-making going, well, what can we do to, if the scenarios that we're expecting pan out, how do we guard, proactively guard ourselves from those? And so we're seeing some of that. Yes. And unfortunately, people tend sometimes to be, uh, the fallout from a lot of that. Okay, human and the natural world are creatures of habit. The path of least resistance. Agreed. So the path of least resistance is a decision. It's basically risk aversion. Um, not making decision, <laughs> you know, is a risk decision. Um, we're going to have a lot of risk decisions being made, both personally as well as organizationally. And what I would advocate is that if you want to set up a practice, uh, focus on risk management frameworks. It's going to be a great area to be in. Uh, 
because all the standards that I'm seeing, and I cover these daily, have a risk component to them. Fight or flight. Uh, yes. Is that a uh, risk a decision? Absolutely. Fighting, risk-taking, fleeing, risk aversion. Uh, are you going to be a, uh, you know, a, um, uh, a, a farmer or a, are you going to be a gatherer or a hunter? A hunter, same thing. Risk-taking, if you're going to be a gatherer, still important, don't get me wrong, risk basically probably sensitive. So there are a whole bunch of metaphors that you can use that really, at its base, deal with risk-based decision-making. Oh, I think one last thought here, Greg, as we wrap it up, is the this fight or flight um, idea. You, you've heard the joke, uh, two guys are sitting in the savannah and a, and a lion is poking her head through the brush and one guy stops to tie his shoes. And his buddy says, what are you doing? We got to get out of here. And he goes, well, I just have to get out of here faster than you. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, munch, munch. And yeah. again, insurance is a form of decision making. It's risk hedging. Yeah, now there's a lot to it. So we're going to have to see what kind of questions we get follow up on this. And if there's other topics related to risk <laughs> and risk management, risk topics in general, let us know. And we'll get Greg back over here to, to explore that and chat about it some more. So thanks again for everybody attending, a uh, combination of new people and, and uh, familiars. So thanks again for showing up uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, uh, Chris Jackson's back on uh, and, and we'll go from there. As usual, I forget whatever our future topics are. It's, <laughs> let you know. So thanks so much again, Greg, for jumping on and have a great rest of your day. Let me go ahead and end the recording. Thanks everybody for attending. Yeah.